Open up to Exodus chapter 15, please. This is going to be our, our uh, uh, text this morning as we, we continue our journey through Exodus. Uh, it is the, <coughs> the Song of Moses, which it, is, it has famously been known as. This is just last week we studied that the people have gone through the Red Sea and the waters have come down and engulfed the Egyptians who chased them on chariots to kill them, God engulfed the Egyptians. And what we have right now, in our mind's eye, we can picture it. Millions, okay, millions of Jews and, and of course, non-Israelite Jews, those who have called God their God but, but were born Egyptians, uh, born uh, of other nationalities. It says in Exodus 12 that a mixed race group of people came out of Egypt to follow God. And so they're standing on, on what was once torrential and now a, now a glassy sea that is flat because God has commanded it to swallow the enemies. And they're standing there and Moses, inspired by the Spirit, which this is also probably one of the skills he had as a poet and a songwriter as an Egyptian royalty, he immediately and on the spot composes a song to God. Miriam then takes it and teaches the women this song. They grab their instruments, if they had any, or just start bashing their their sheep to the beat, and they sing and imagine, can you imagine millions of voices singing at one time? I love being here, 200 odd people, uh, the, the voices pouring forward overwards as we praise to God, but I, I would love to be in a congregation of a million and, and everybody singing heartily to God. That's the scene that we have today. <clears throat> And the people memorized it, and it would have become somewhat of a theme or, or a national anthem as they marched throughout the wilderness. They, they kept on singing this first song that they knew as a people under God. And, and we could ask the question, if we study the history, if we study the facts of redemption last week, which was Exodus 13 and 14, why now do we need to go and study the song in Exodus 15, which gives us no new information? And that very question undergirds the problem that we have with our worship. We think that as long as we know the facts, we have fulfilled our duty. But God's glory is always revealed through His works, revealed through the Word, so that we behold it and then give Him glory in song for it. This is extremely important. that We understand that we have not yet... Uh, obeyed the word, we have not yet fulfilled our duty to God as redeemed people if we merely know the facts of redemption, if we merely understand truths of scripture, but until we have sung them back to God for his glory, that is the full commandment of God. That is the first reason we need to study Exodus chapter 15, the song of Moses. But a second reason we need to sit, study the song of Moses is because they currently are now Singing the song of Moses in heaven. Go with me to Revelation chapter 15. We're in Exodus 15. Go to Revelation 15. If you're new to the Bible, it's the very last book. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. So please ask whoever invited you here today and we'll get you a free one. In Revelation chapter 15, <clears throat> verse 3 and 4, John sees this vision in heaven. Of the souls before God. He says in verse 3, And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. 
Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. The saints in heaven have taken in their perfect nature. They don't have sin anymore. They, they take the perfect uh, uh, now minds, sanctified minds. They take the song of Moses and they baptize it in the truth of the gospel and they sing towards God the song of Moses, God's servant, and of the Lamb. They, they Christianize an Old Testament psalm in order to make it appropriate for new covenant worship. And, and this is our focus of study today. That the book of Exodus, we have been saying, is all about God redeeming. But it's more than that. It's all about God redeeming for his own glory. But it's more than that. It's about God redeeming for his glory so that his redeemed people give him due worship. That's why the next half of the book is all going to be about the tabernacle and worshipping God rightly. So today, let's, let's read Exodus chapter 15. We're going to go from verse 1 through 21. And I ask now for you to listen intently and engagedly to this song, which is the song of Moses, the words of God. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The, uh, Yahweh is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Yahweh, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its full, its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty water. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led your, in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed and have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall on them because of the greatness of your arm. They are as still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Verse 19. 
For when the horses of Pharaoh with the chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. May God bless his own word in our midst this morning. Miriam took that song and she taught it to the, to the ladies and they danced with, uh, with, with tambourines. Uh, we see as she sings just the first verse of the song there at the very end, that is really just a way of saying she taught them the whole thing. They went through the congregation singing and dancing and teaching everybody so that all of the households of Israel knew this song. Exodus is all about God's glory in judging his enemies and redeeming his people. That's what we've said. But God's glory is not only to be, to be some objective truth in God, nor is it merely to be an objective truth understood subjectively by the people. That's good. That's necessary. But it is also to be truth, something true of God, truth known by the people, and then truth sung triumphantly by the redeemed people of God. Singing is always the expected response of God's amazing deeds. Singing songs is always the expected response when God does something amazing. This is true even at creation. God says in Job 38 verse 7, he's speaking about the creation moment, and he says, when the morning stars sang together, and all of the sons of God shouted for joy. How he describes creation, the moment of the stars singing, the galaxy songs. Or Psalm 19 says that even currently, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Or in redemptive history, whenever God does something amazing, the people of God take a, take a moment to step aside and write a song about it. Uh, uh, we do this even in our own culture at certain times and certain victories. But in Judges 5, when Barak and Deborah won against Sisera, they composed a song and praised God for his work. When David uh, uh, was given a victory under God in 2 Samuel 22, he goes and composes a song all about it. In Isaiah 51 verse 11, Isaiah is prophesying the moment that the exiled Israelites are going to come back into their land, and here's how he prophesies them. He says, all the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. This is a, this is a theme throughout the Bible. When God does something amazing, the people of God write and sing songs. It even happens in the New Testament. In God's greatest act, the, the ministry of Christ, when the incarnation occurs and Mary is assured that she is carrying the Messiah, she sings a song. She composes and sings a song to the faithful God. And then she goes to the temple with the baby. And Anna the prophetess also sings a song. And, and then Zechariah composes a song and praises God even at that moment. This is a constant theme in biblical history. Singing is the expected and commanded response of God's people to his works of salvation. Singing is the expected and commanded response of God's people to God for his salvation. 
it's funny, we may not realize this in our day, flooded with worship albums and churches defined by their worship team. But in the 1600s and 1700s after the Reformation, it actually became quite a debate that became quite heated as to whether or not the Bible even allowed singing in the congregational worship of God at all. People had to debate that, argued about that, lost friends over that, were kicked out of churches for their views on that. And, 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 and then we look at us and we say, well, we're in an age where we know that's true, but we look at individuals. Some of us sitting here right now here today, it would make sense to me if you weren't sure that you were allowed to sing because you're acting like you don't know. You, you don't sing heartily. You don't open your voice up. You don't give God the glory that he deserves because of the glory of the gospel. But this has been a normative part of worship to God. All throughout God's redemptive history, he has commanded and expected singing. In the tabernacle and temple worship, they used to have some certain psalms that they would sing as they approached the temple, as they're walking there, getting their hearts ready, singing together. Then they would start their worship service as a prophet or one of the priests would stand up and teach them. They would sing a song at the gate of the temple to ready their hearts for approach. This would be something like Psalm 24. Who can approach the temple of God? Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. This was a, this is a standing at the gate, ready to go through, readying the heart in song. Then there would be a, a sermon from the Levite, and then they would go through, and then in their approach, they would sing again, going through the gates. And then they would, they would also sing as they give sacrifices, they would sing walking around the altar as a sign of saying, this is my sacrifice, this is my song. And then after the sacrifices, when they've been told they are cleansed by God, they would sing other psalms, they would sing other hymns to the Lord. <clears throat> then also, uh, not only is it a part of the temple worship, but it was also commanded in Psalm 100. We have a song that we sing here that is verbatim Psalm 100 in the English transla translation. Here's what it says, the first four verses. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. There you go. Are you in the earth? Then you must give praise to God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. So enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. A command from Holy Scripture. Enter into God's covenantal meeting place in the church, in the new covenant, with songs and singing and praises. Also, Jesus sung hymns at the Last Supper. We see this in Matthew 26. They sung a hymn, then they went to pray. And, all, and, and then in Colossians and Ephesians, where we see that, 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 that Paul commands us to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, making melody as we do so. We also see in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, that the, creation, the, the, the creatures around God's throne in heaven sang a new song. They composed a song appropriate to the moment and they sang it together and the, all of the creation that God has made joined in singing to the Lamb for his salvation. So let's reiterate, singing is the expected and commanded response of God's people to God for his work in salvation. It's true of the Old Testament, it's true in the New Testament, and it's true of heaven right now. So let's look at chapter 15 and pull out a couple of applications here. We're going to see what worship songs should include as a basis of what we see in Exodus chapter 15. So look at verse 1 through 3. 
we see that whenever God is being praised, he is being praised as the Savior. If he is being worshipped by his redeemed people, he is being worshipped as Savior. So verse 1 through 3. I'll sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The Lord, the horse and his rider, he's thrown in the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. God is a savior. It says here in verse 3, he is a man of war. He is a, he is a battle warrior. So when David was saved with the Israelites, when David saved the Israelites from Goliath, they wrote songs about him because he was a victorious man of war. And so much more, when God, the man of war, steps in and saves his people, we sing to him as Savior. We exalt his name as the Lord, the Savior. When he triumphs gloriously, his people praise him for it. Look at verse 2. If the Lord is your strength, then he must also be your song. If the Lord is your salvation, halfway through verse 2, then he must also be the one that you praise in the next line. If he saved you, then sing. If he strengthens you, then praise. The Lord must be exalted, as he says at the end of verse 2 there. I will exalt him. It is, it is completely unfitting that souls would know themselves as redeemed from eternal hell and yet not be those who voluntarily, willingly, and yet involuntarily, in some sense, give their praises to God as Savior. Moses saw God triumph greatly, and so he praised him as the Savior. Secondly, look at verses 4, all the way through to verse 12. <clears throat> and what we see is that Moses' song is structured and is focused on the attributes of God. That is that his singing to God is based in truth, and it is based in response to God's nature, his attributes, and his works, the things he has done. This is a part of reformed worship and, and historical Christian worship is that our, our, our songs are not based and are not, are not judged by how good they are. The metrics for that is not how, how warm and tingly they make you feel, how deep the bass is, right? How, 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 how much you're just enraptured up into this sort of airy-fairy moment of, of repetition and how, how much you feel like you're in heaven right now. Those, those things uh, may or may not happen given any song. I've, I've been in, in, in churches with zero music and felt like I was in heaven. I've been in churches with a whole bunch of music and felt like I was somewhere else. It's not about how we feel in that moment that makes it good worship. It's not about how, how, how many tears are shed that make it biblical worship. What makes it biblical worship is that it is in response to God's attributes and his, his works. And that is true spiritual worship. Some people like to say, you know, there's, there's truth-based songs and then there's, and then there's spiritual songs. You know, the ones that really inspire you and get you going. No, if it is anything other than the truth of God, his nature and his works and salvation, that gets you going in that moment, you're engaging in blasphemy and idolatry. You're worshipping something other than God as he has revealed himself in scripture. Something else is getting you super excited and it's probably just the four chord progression. So, we see in Moses, from verse 4 through 12, he exalts God for the things that are true about God in his nature and his work. So, firstly, in verse 4 and 5, we see him praising God for the destruction of his enemies. He swallowed up the Egyptians. He destroyed the chariots and the riders. God defeated Egypt, and he wanted praise for it. 
God killed the soldiers and he wanted praise for it. Just like when God defeated Saul, he wanted David to praise him for it. When God sent uh, uh, Jael to send the tent peg through the head of Sisera as he slept, God wanted a song about that. Does that fit in with your evangelical mindset? It doesn't fit into our culture today, not even the Christian culture. That God is a man of war who wants his people to compose songs about sending a tent peg through the head of an enemy king. And yet that's Judges 5. This is Exodus chapter 15. God desires worship for his judgment and his wrath. So many churches try and avoid songs that mention his wrath. There's a great song in Christ alone. And there's a line in it that says that at the cross of Christ, the wrath of God was satisfied. And there were some liberal Christians who had, who had loved the tune and liked the rest of the song and had tried to take that song and request permission to remove the line and say the love of God was magnified. That's not wrong. That's a good lyric. Just don't replace the wrath of God with the love of God or you don't understand either. So many people think that we, we worship God for his, his mercy and His grace and His love and, and there is a blemish out here called the wrath of God, but one day we'll get to heaven and we won't have to think about that. No, no, for eternity we'll be praising God for His wrath against Christ in our place and praising Him for His justice on, in His wrath in hell. It's difficult for us now because we're so unsanctified. But there will be a day when our mind is perfect like Christ's and we will be able to fully understand and even comprehend. And I hope it's true now to a degree that we can amen like Moses. We can lift our hands in praise and say the wrath of God is not some capricious, angry, moody, fatherly wrath. It is the fair and just wrath of a holy God. And whenever we praise God for his works... We're praising him in some deal for his judgment against God's enemies. We need to not be afraid of that. But we are always remembering and thinking of it through this filter. That that wrath is what I deserved. I'm not, I'm not singing as some, uh, uh, some high and mighty person against other people who deserve God's wrath. And I'm glad I'm righteous. We are always recognizing God's wrath as that which we all deserve. And yet by his grace, he saves some through the Red Sea and drowns others in his wrath and then demands the redeemed to praise God for it, even if you don't quite understand why you got saved and somebody else doesn't. The, the justice of God is a difficult, the wrath of God is difficult to get our heads, especially our hearts around, and yet it is a theme of the praises of God in Scripture. He also praises God for His power. Look at verse 6 and 7. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. You have, in the greatness of your majesty, you overthrew our, your adversaries. God is strong and he wants to be worshipped as the most powerful divine being, as the only true living God. His power and his, his displays of power in his works show his strength and set him above all other gods, all other religions, every act of demonic worship and every other king and tyrant like Pharaoh. And God wants to be glorified for his power. Or we can see his unique holiness in verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? We, we saw this back in Exodus 3 when God showed himself through the burning bush. He had, he had revealed through his name, I am. 
And he was showing in that name that he is independent of all other things. He is unlike any other imagination of God, any other demonic manifestation of God, any other pretended imagination that man comes up with. God is the one true living God, dependent on no one, relying on nothing. He is the sovereign. He is unique in his holiness. That's what it means for him to be Yahweh. He wants worship for that. And he wants worship. Look at verse 13 as well. He wants worship for his steadfast love to his people. You have led your, in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You've guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Despite his wrath, despite his angry power, despite this unique holiness, God condescends first in the bush he condescends through his servant Moses. He condescends through the law and the tabernacle and the sacrifices. He condescends over and over again to meet with an unworthy people. But most of all, he condescends in his steadfast love to be among his people as one of them in Jesus Christ, to die for their sins, to rise again, to go to heaven and come back again one day. God has condescended in his steadfast faithful, unbreakable, eternal, immortal, infinite, electing love. And he wants to be praised for it. So our worship, like Moses, should be on the basis of his attributes, for his perfect nature, for his wondrous works. The most biblical worship is not merely emotional, but enlightens our mind and then inflames our heart. I came up with an analogy and I trust it will stay with you forever because it's based on everybody's favorite instrument. The bagpipes. Thank you. One day we'll have them here and that will be as close to heaven as we get. <clears throat> as we, I don't know if you know how bagpipes work, that will, that will necessitate this analogy meaning anything for you. The, 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 the player, the piper, has a, has a tube or a straw in which he fills the bag with his breath so that on one point he can be playing and blowing through the, through the pipes like any other sort of a, a reed instrument uh, or woodwind instrument. Don't correct me later, Reuben, thank you. Uh, but, but as he's taking his breath, he's able to keep the playing going by, by having, as it were, a third lung. As he squeezes the bags, then he's able to send out the noises through the uh, pipes. And, and so you get the most glorious, beautiful, wonderful, heavenly, godly song ever sung, uh, uh, O Scotland the Brave. And so <clears throat> the bagpipes, here's, here's our analogy. As we understand truth, and as we see and understand the words of the gospel in the Bible, what we're doing is, is we're filling this bagpipe with air. And what we're doing in worship is completing the act. What we're doing in worship is we are, we're squeezing that bag so that the beautiful, and, and it's not an insult for me to say you sound like bagpipes, but, but for, to then be able to erupt out of our hearts, which we're filled with truth, for it to then erupt through our, our vocal cords and out of our mouth up to God is the final part of playing the song of the redeemed people. We are not able to simply fill our minds and our hearts or our lungs with truth without also expressing it outwards to God. And so we should for his nature and his attributes. Thirdly, we can see in verse 14 through 17, we've seen that worship should be worshiping God as Savior. It should be on the basis of his attributes and works. Thirdly, we should see that worship instills confidence in the Lord for future battles. Worship encourages the saints with faith in what is future and yet to come. Look at verse 14 through 17. He says that the people, that is the other nations who are living in the promised land that we are told to go and take, 
the nations, the people that stand between us and the promised land, the people who are enemies to us right now because of their sin against God and their hatred of the Israelites, he's saying those people have heard what happened to Egypt. They've been getting the news reports about the destruction of their economy through the plagues of God. And he's saying that they are filled with fear. They are trembling. They are dismayed. They are melting away because of the greatness of your arm, verse 16 says. And in uh, in uh, second line of verse 16... He says, because of the greatness of your arm, they are as still as stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, the people pass by whom you have purchased. In verse 17, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. Moses is putting into song something to instill the Israelites with faith in God for the future battles. We have just seen a tremendous act of God. We have just seen a tremendous miracle. God has saved us and judged his enemies. Now look to the unseen future and reassure your heart he will continue to do the same because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He has steadfast love. He never breaks his promises. So take heart, O Israelite, with all future battles. Now you don't need to get to verse 25 in the next passage next week before you realize they start forgetting that and grumbling and complaining and being idolatrous. But the worship of God is meant to combat that common tendency we all have. It reminds us and it instills us with faith in the future. Whatever they will stand against, God will be with them and show himself as mighty, powerful, holy, loving, saving God. And then look at verse 18. Fourthly, every good worship song, or or at least a theme in worship songs, ought to be that they worship God as reigning Lord. Verse 18 says, the Lord will reign forever and ever. Every worship song towards God exalts him as Savior and exalts that he alone is God who is establishing his rule and reign in the world. What we're saying when we say that the Lord is reigning forever and ever. We are saying that history is not left to random chance. We are saying that this world has not been abandoned. We are saying that humanity is not on their own and the people of God are not being unguided, left in the blackness of of ignorance. What we are saying when we say that the Lord reigns and will reign forever and ever is that Yahweh is God The only God's name is Yahweh, revealed through the person of Jesus, and he will accomplish in history and beyond all of the purposes that he has set out to accomplish. History is not random. Humanity is not lost. God is working and saving and progressively bringing his kingdom into the world. Now, all of those things are true, and yet, We have realities that are far more true than anything Moses could have sung. That's why in Revelation, when John was given that vision back in the first century, it was not enough that the saints in heaven sang again the song of Moses. They needed to sing the song of Moses and the Lamb. Because there is something enormously incomplete about a a house without a roof. Or even more, a building without a foundation. 
And we are more than just Israelites. We are Christians saved by Jesus. And he is the apex of the great point of all of Scripture. He is the foundation of the church and all of our salvation. And so while we can amen and read and sing this song of Moses over and again, we need to take our, our, our cues from the saints in heaven and add to the song of Moses the song of the Lamb. Or in other words, our worship should do all of the things we've said today, but in a more complete way, looking to Jesus Christ. So we said, firstly, that we need to honor God as Savior. But that means that now, after his resurrection and ascension, it means that it is, look at verse verse 1. We will sing to Jesus the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. We need to sing to him, for he, as verse 2 says, Jesus is my strength and my song. It is he who has become our salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. Jesus is a man of war. Our songs today need to praise Jesus as the Savior, meaning that they are deeply focused on, on his life and his death and his resurrection, the great gospel truths that we should be singing in not just Easter services, I, I know we, we, you might be coming here for a while and just get so used to it, but there are so many worship leaders and pastors and worship pastors and, and all sorts of different combinations of the, of the rest, and they'll try and try and try and try and every, you know, there's worship songs and there's praises songs, and every now and then you get a cross song or a Jesus song, but, but let's really dwell on those spirit songs. Not here. Never here. Here we worship as scripture intends that we see Jesus, his work on the, his life, death, and resurrection as the constant theme of our praises. Secondly, our praises, as we said, we should be to God for his nature and works. Well, now in the new covenant, they should be towards Jesus Christ for the nature of God and the works of God in him. So we praise that he is God and man. We sing that. We praise him for killing his enemies, sin, death, And Satan, look at verse uh, 4 here, where it says Pharaoh's chariots were cast into the sea. We can now say, our sin and death you cast into the sea. Satan and his hosts went into the depths like a stone. They sunk like lead in the mighty waters. This is our theme. We praise him as uh, because of his works and his deeds for destroying his enemies in wrath. We praise him for his power. We might sing, your right hand, O Jesus, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Jesus Christ, shatters the enemy. We praise him for his unique holiness. Who is like you, O Lord Jesus, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, sinless in your life, perfect in your manhood, powerful in your divinity, awesome in glorious deeds, doing signs and wonders, and raising yourself back to life again? Our worship should be to God for his nature and works, and especially in Jesus Christ for his nature and his works in the gospel. Or thirdly, we said that worship should build confidence in future battles. Well, now we praise Jesus in such a way as to be reassured that Jesus will preserve us and lead us to heaven. We might sing this. You have led in your steadfast love, as we sort of take away from verse uh, 16 and 17 here. And, and, uh, and even for, uh, uh, 13. I might reword it like this, the song of Moses and the Lamb. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Because of the greatness of your arm, Lord Jesus, the people you have purchased can never be lost. 
You will build your church and the gates of hell will never stand against it. He who has begun a good work in us will bring it on to completion. You, O Father, who did not keep back your own son will also give us all things necessary with him. Can sin or trial or demon or death separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? No, for in him we are more than conquerors in the God-man, Jesus Christ. The, the songs of God need to be, need to be those chants, those, those, those wartime melodies that we sing to instill us with confidence in the future battles, maybe just tomorrow. Maybe it's just temptation tomorrow that you know will be rearing its head. Maybe it's something that's going to meet you when you go home, the, the unsaved family members, the difficult home life, some kind of situation that will provide temptation and dismay. Maybe it is sickness, maybe it is nearing death, whatever it may be, Jesus will be faithful through it all. And it is the Sabbath day praises that play a large part in instilling our hearts with faith. And of course, fourthly, we praise God as reigning God. We, or in the new covenant, we exalt Jesus as reigning king. The Lord, verse 18, the Lord will reign forever and ever. The Lord Jesus Christ will reign forever and ever. For he has been given the name that is above every name, so that at his name every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The Lord Jesus will reign forever and ever and his kingdom will have no end. The kingdoms of the world have become the kingdom of God and of his Christ. He is king of kings and lord of lords. All glory, all glory, all glory that we can muster and infinity times more. All glory that we can pour out in all of eternity will continue to be insufficient for the glory that Jesus is worthy of for his life in our place, his death on the cross and his triumphant resurrection from the grave. Jesus is worthy everything that we can give. Jesus is worthy of every ounce that we can muster to sing for he is Lord and he will reign whether we like it or not, unbelievers, forever and ever. So Christian, as the redeemed people who have been saved by Jesus from our sin, it is our choice, it, it is our job rather, it is our, it is our commandment and the expectation that we will be a singing people to the Lord Jesus Christ. You were created to glorify God, so sing with power, sing with passion, Sing with might and joy and an air of triumph, even if in life you feel like a loser. You are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, the man of war, the triumphant Savior. Sing with triumph and joy in his promises. Singing is the expected and commanded response of God's people to his works of salvation. But if you do not believe today, if you are not a Christian if you are not a part of the saving work that Jesus Christ has accomplished, then it is not merely that you stand at odds with the church. It is not merely that you stand at odds with the pastor who says that you should praise Jesus. It is not merely that you stand at odds with maybe the, the religion of your family. It is that you stand at odds with the very purpose of creation in the universe. You stand against the grain of why everything was spoken into being. You are swimming upstream against the Niagara Falls. You, you are at, at odds with the very reason you were created, which is to exalt God for all that he is and to glorify him with clean hands and a pure heart. However, you have failed to do that as we all have every day 
of our lives. Romans 1 tells us that we fail to reflect back to God his glory because we enjoy things like drink and sex and attention and worshiping created things and new ageism or new cars and, and great jobs and, and, and flashy clothes. We, we worship these material things that will pass away and we fail to give glory to God, the only one due, all of it. And for that, for failing to give him glory, for refusing in your heart, refusing to do what you know is true and right and good, which is to praise God for who he is and all that he does. For that, you deserve an eternity in hell. There is no finite God. There is no momentary God that you are sinning against. When you refuse to give glory to God through Jesus, you are, you are, you are a, 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 a triggering the anger. You are breaking the law of an infinite, eternal God. And the punishment of that kind of crime is always going to be infinite and eternal in nature. That is why hell is an eternal place of torment given to all those who refuse to bend the knee and refuse to give glory to God. But in God's love and in His grace, where His glory is put on display... He sent his son, the very beauty and the very nature and the very reality of his own being, his son. He sent into history as Jesus Christ, who lived the life you could never have lived, who in every ounce of his words and thoughts and deeds, in everything that he ever did, his one controlling factor was obedience to God and giving him the glory he deserved. He was perfect in every way you could never have been. And with his perfection, for always doing what you had never done, which is giving glory to God, he gave himself as a sacrifice to absorb in that moment on the cross the hell that you deserve for not giving glory to God, for living your own way, for breaking his law, and for treating him with such disdain you don't even try and give it a second thought. For all of those sins, Jesus was crushed and bruised and was made to bleed and suffer so that your eternal hell could be swallowed in an infuriating hardship on the cross of pain and torment by him, the God-man. And then God, because Jesus had glorified him, because Jesus had obeyed him, God resurrected Jesus to defeat death. He brought him out of the grave on the Sunday as a sure sign to everybody in every generation ever to come until the end of history that the only people who are saved from the wrath of God are those who trust in this Savior, Jesus Christ. And so that you can be sure that if you trust Jesus Christ, you will be saved. He defeated death. Who else has done that? He has thrown death into the grave. He has swallowed death with the waters of his own power and now lived, showed himself to others, did miracles and went up to heaven where he will come back one day. I know I ask you to believe something you cannot see, but blessed are those who believe without seeing. And the Spirit is able to give you a heart of faith this morning. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the only Savior from sin, the only defeater of death. He is the Savior put on offer to you today. And by faith in Him, by trusting Him, by relying on His promises, God will see you as a child, as a redeemed one, that He has purchased by His blood and by His strong right arm. He will bring you to heaven and keep you for eternity. Let's pray. Father God, we learn much. We learn much from this song of Moses today. We praise you and exalt you for the wonderful work by which you redeemed your people. Even though they were undeserving, you redeemed them by your grace. And you judged those others 
who also deserved your punishment. You gave it to them in fairness because of the hardness of your heart and your own sovereign decision. You poured out your judgment on them. And Father God, we see it as a parable of those who reject you and rebel against you. You will one day throw into the, into the red sea of the lake of fire. And yet, Lord God, those who, who call you their God, who place their faith in you and your promises, they will be saved. They will be redeemed, though they don't deserve it. And we thank you for that. As we see in, in all of this reality of, of Moses' song, we learn how to sing. We learn that you love the praises of your people, that you inhabit and you dwell in the praises of your people. Father God, we thank you for that and we learn to sing. We yearn to sing. Would you make us a singing, triumphant, joyous, mighty people by song and our words? But God, also, would you enable us to look constantly to Jesus in our singing? And to those who are unbelievers in our midst, would you give to them today a heart of faith to, for the first time, that they would see Jesus Christ by faith, that they would realize what it is that the gospel holds out to them, that they would understand how guilty they are, they would understand how merciful you are to in Jesus and embrace him with their soul. Father God, would you be exalted in the praises of your people as we glorify Jesus Christ for all glory is due to him now and forever. The Lord Jesus Christ reigns forever and ever. And everybody said... This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.